so it was not an intentional thing. Um, clouds of, on that positive note, clouds of witnesses. Today we're going to talk about the saints. My name is Carla. I um, fell in love with the church when I was in high school. I was a cradle Catholic. Both of my parents are kind of converts to the faith. And I, felt, uh, I grew up in a house that prayed together. I grew up in a house where we went to church every Sunday. I grew up in a house where we were really active in church. But going into middle school and high school, it just wasn't that important to me. Like, I didn't really care. Going to Mass my entire life, how many of you are cradle Catholics? Yeah, how many of you are converts? Um, uh, I used to play a game in middle school, I don't know if any of you do this, where you try to say Mass faster than the priest. Do any of you have ever tried that? Like, it's a really fun game. <laughs> um, but, like, I knew the roteness of it. I knew the prayers. Like, I could rattle off prayers like nobody's business. I knew the teachings of the faith, um, the basic teaching of the faith. But I didn't really have faith, per se. So I think from the beginning up until my, my I would say my more conversion or reversion into the church that happened when I was a freshman in high school, like, the seeds were being planted. And it wasn't until I was in high school an acquaintance of mine ended up uh, killing themselves, and it impacted me really, really, like, strongly, like, um, to the point where I just didn't know what to do. I went home, like, uh, they actually shot themselves at my school. I went to Etowah High School in Woodstock. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that area. Um, and I remember getting picked up, and I was like, my mom was asking me how I felt. I was like, I'm not sure how I feel. Like, I had been hanging out with this person the day before he passed away. And she's like, well, we need to go to, this is my mom, like, she's, she's the same. She's like, we need to go to church and we need to pray. And I'm like rolling my eyes. I was involved in the youth ministry program there, so she brings me into the church. My youth minister was there, and he was asking how I was doing. They had set up, like, a little prayer service. And I looked him straight in the eyes, my youth minister at the time, who's actually now a priest. He's, like, young. He's probably in his early 20s. And I go, I just don't believe in God like in the most like freshman way you possibly could in high school. And he looked at me straight in the eyes, and I'll never forget what he said to me. He goes, well, that's what your prayer needs to be. And he turned me around, and he walked me into the chapel, and the Blessed Sacrament was in adoration, like already set up in there, and people were praying. And he nailed me down in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and he walked away. And it's weird, because like when you think about journeys of faith, like not very many people can pinpoint the moment but I remember in my knees, in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and I just said, like, I don't believe in you, show me. Like, I don't believe in you, show me. Like, I don't believe in you, show me. And I was praying those words over and over and over again. And it's not like God's booming voice was like, yes, I am real. Wouldn't it be cool if that happened? Has that ever happened to anyone in here? No, okay. I was like, if, if it did, come hang out with me. I need, I need to hang out with holy people. Um, but there was a softening that was started happening in my heart, and, and I don't know what to say other than I walked out of that chapel different than when I walked in. And it's funny because I recognize, looking back at it, that like in that moment of being like, I don't believe when you show me, um, it was me recognizing that God is God, right? And that invitation for him to soften my heart. And so that is sort of the moment where I started really wanting to grow in faith, and so really wanting to start learning, and growing, and doing, um, so it makes me really excited to have you guys here that are, like, even just the initiation, some of you are probably like, I just want to hang out with people, 
initiation of growing in faith. So that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the cloud of witnesses. We're talking about the communion of saints. Um, and we're talking about and diving into how that relates to me. I decided very intentionally when it was time for college that I wanted to go to schools where faith would be talked about. I ended up at a small college called Barry College in Rome, Georgia. Did anyone go there? I had a cousin. I started out there. It was Protestant. Um, they were mostly Protestants. There was a small faction of Catholics. Um, and that was really a great place for me to foster my faith as I started studying for occupational therapy. I ended up going to Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, which is now, I think, Regents University, um, for my degree in occupational therapy. I had this plan that, that, I, like, that I was like, I'm going to go to this school. I'm going to become this. Um, I practiced occupational therapy for about four years full time. And then I felt like God was calling me to more. So I became a youth minister. Um, so I quit my full-time job, cut my salary in half, and became a youth minister for middle school and high school, kids in my early 20s. Um, worked at St. Thomas the Apostle in Smyrna for about six years doing that, and I felt like God was calling me even to more. Um, and in that time, powerful, it's so cool to watch God work in young people's lives. Like, powerful moments throughout that ministry. Really hard moments, but also really powerful moments. Um, I ended up at... Uh, um, felt like just being called to more. And so I ended up becoming a full-time missionary for the Catholic Church um, for a year. And I traveled around the world just talking to people about Jesus and meeting people and experiencing different cultures. Um, and I also helped with the Life Teen program, running summer camps and stuff like that um, in that year. So I cut my salary to zero. I asked people to give me money. And I, uh, after formation, went to India and Mexico Jamaica, just bringing the gospel to people. So it's like he kept calling me out to more. Um, after my missionary year, I was sort of discerning what to do, and I had this opportunity to go to a small university in Ohio called Franciscan University. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it. And I, did you go? Such a cloud of witnesses. 
around us. And so when we talk about being saint, a lot of times we are preconceived of thinking that there's these people in our church that have done these great things, right? And that we're called to be a saint, but we're not sure how to do it. I remember in high school, I grew up when John Paul II was pope. I'm a little bit older than most people in the room. And, um, and I remember when I read and heard his message to young people where he said, you are called to be great saints. When you say that, what does your heart say? What does your heart do? Because there's usually two responses, well, three responses. Some are just like, yeah, whatever. I've heard that before. Sort of apathy. Some people are like, yeah, like they're Joan of Arc. Like, yes, I will pick up the sword and I will be a saint. And some of you respond in fear, right? In utter fear. Like, what does it mean to be a saint? Because that means something's got to change, right? But the thing that we have to remember is there's a universal call to holiness in each and every one of us by virtue of our baptism. We're part of God's family. And we're called to holiness. So holiness, first and foremost, is a gift for God. So we have to ask. God never forces himself on us, right? We have to ask for God's gift of holiness. How many of you have ever gone to prayer and be like, God, help me be holy? Like, it's never something that I actually think about. Does anyone in here ever think about it? Yes? No? Maybe? Like, it is a gift from God. So... Be bold in your asking, right? Be bold in asking as you're forming this relationship with Christ. Ask, like, how can I be holy? Which we're going to talk a little more about today. It's by living in love and offering Christian witness in our daily tasks. The pathway to holiness is humble and patient. Um, a lot of times, I think, we think of sainthood as this big act of faith, which a lot of times there's a point in someone's life where that act has to happen, right? But there is a lot of little pieces that go into the point of the ask, right? It's not most of the time, I mean, there's always exceptions to every rule, but most of their times, they're small walks closer and closer in faith, amen? So God calls us to be holy. Saints are holy people. Thus, we are all called to holiness. If you take, that's a good one to take away too. You can um, take notes on the back if anyone likes to take notes. I'm a writer. Some people like to draw while they listen. Whatever you guys want to do, I'm cool with. If you need to stand up in the back, do it. So what is the path to holiness? We're going to start in scripture with a call of Simon Peter. So if you have your scripture and want to open it, it's Luke chapter 5, verses 1 and 11. The call of the first disciples. While the people pressed up upon to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had got out of them and were washing their nets. They weren't in their boats. Getting into one of the boats, which always makes me laugh, because picture someone walking up to your car and just getting into your car. Right? Like, this is Matthew's livelihood. Like, this is Simon Peter's livelihood. Jesus just walks up and gets in the boat. So he walks up, he gets, so they're washing their nets. Jesus, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, 
Canaanites, he asked him to put out from the land. So he's asking an expert fisherman, getting in his boat, he had, and Jesus has the audacity to ask him, hey, put out from your land. So he's telling him what to do. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he ceased speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets in for a catch. And Simon answered, so he'd been listening to Jesus. He says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the net. So he's recognizing, hey, I worked really hard on this all night, and nothing happened. Right? Like, this is my jam. Nothing happened. But if you ask me to, I will. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great shoal of fish. And as their nets were breaking, they beckoned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, if you had just gotten the... I don't know what your jobs are, but if you had just gotten and pulled in, you were on the game show and you pulled in a million dollars because this guy told you to do this, what would your reaction be? I would be, like, freaking out excited, right? Like, I want I did this. Peter, Simon Peter's reaction is to fall on his knees and say, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished and that all the, and all that were with him at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And then Jesus said to Simon, he had something to say to him. He said, immediately after he falls, he said, Do not be afraid. Henceforth you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I think there's a lot to learn from this. This of what is the path to holiness? I think Simon Peter lays it out, the call of the first people that Jesus wants to be close to him. I still laugh about him just climbing in the boat. Like, no big deal. I think I would freak out if someone climbed in my car. The first thing that we have to do, the first step is finding the center. Right? So we have to allow God in. For me in my life, it was that moment of like, Lord, I'm just honest with you. Like, complete honesty. Like, I don't believe in you. Show me. Like, show me you're real. Don't be afraid for the big ask. But allow God in. And that means allowing him into everything. So many times we like to show him the shiny, shiny pretty pieces of our life. But like he, and granted, he knows all that he wants in the hard parts of your life. The, the like, not so pretty. And as soon as we allow God in, what do you see happens in the scripture? He asks us to move into the deep, right? He doesn't want us to get in the shallows. He wants us to move into the deep. He wants us to walk and to trust in that depth of what he has for us, like the abundance of what he has for us. So he allows, the third one which always makes me laugh, allow God to drive. How many times do we think, like, we're like, hey, God, I'd like this to happen, but I don't really want this to happen, right? Or God asks us to get rid of a relationship because he knows there's something better, but it's really comfortable, and I think I might just settle for it, right? There's certain things that God asks, like, allow God to drive our lives. Like, allow him to be the center of that, and that's hard. I think it's something I have to ask for every day. Like, Lord, help me be the center of this. Like, help be the center of this. But, and then he cooperates with Christ. He literally was like, Hey, I did this all day. I'm an expert at this. 
but I mean, if you tell me to do it, I guess I'll do it, right? And there was great reward in, in allowing God to drive the boat. And that means surrendering. That means recognizing it. And I think it's hard, like, when we realize in our life, every good and perfect thing in our lives is God. Like, every good and perfect thing in our lives is God. The only thing that we can claim is fully our own is our sin. Do you ever think about that? Every good and perfect gift is from God. The only thing we claim is our own is our sin. And so when we start realizing that, it's easier to let God drive, right? So the second path to holiness is knowing that he's a sinner. As soon as this amazing thing happened, he realized it wasn't just him, and he recognizes it, and he falls on his knees, and he says, I am such a sinner. Like, why are you even here? Have you ever felt like that after, like, making a really bad decision in your life? Like, why are you even here? And Jesus is very patient in that. He moved more close. The more we move more closely to the vine, the more we realize where our love realize where in our lives we are off kilter. The closer we move to God, the easier it is to recognize sin and not settle for sin in our lives. The more often we're going to be at reconciliation, like going back to the sacraments over and over again, the more we desire not to fall into the same sin. Do you ever feel like that way? The same sin over and over. Like I get bored with my confession sometimes, but like start digging to the root of like, why am I doing this? My sin of pride always comes from not feeling adequate enough. So I was like, or not, or having someone make me feel not adequate. Like, I'm like, let me show you what I know. Let me show you what I can do. So it always comes from that wound. And so God always asks me to go back to that woundedness in order to help overcome that sin. So you have to go to hard places to overcome sin. And you have to seek healing and want healing and put the work in something. Holiness is amazing, but it's not always easy. The third part I have to holiness is realizing my life is not about me. Like, it just isn't. It's not about us. I think when we get married and have children, we realize this more. As we get older and more mature, we realize this more and more and more. Because some of the most holy men and women that should probably be up here doing this talk are the moms that are up at like 2 o'clock in the morning and they, I'll never forget, I was over at my friend Carrie's house. She has like, she has six kids now. She had five at the time. And one of the kids just walked up to her and started throwing up and so she's catching the throw up in her hand as she's having a conversation with me. If that isn't holiness, not even missing a beat, I don't know what it is. Like, this, the path to holiness is humble and small. It's choosing love in certain instances. It's choosing forgiveness in certain instances. It's allowing mercy in certain instances. It's giving the benefit of the doubt. It's like fortitude. It's love. It's hope. It's having those pieces in it. Nowhere in scripture is there love. So realizing why my life is not about me. He says literally in scripture, like he's like, Simon Peter's on his knees. He's like, I'm such a sinful man. Like, depart from me. And Jesus' response to him is like, nope, yeah, I know you are. He's like, do not be afraid. Like, he tells him not to be afraid, and then he calls us to something more. Whenever God takes away something that's even really good in our lives, he usually wants to say, this isn't right, I have something better for you. I have something different for you. It's okay to mourn, it's okay to walk through that, but there is hope and happiness at the end. Nowhere in scripture is there someone given a vision of God that's not also given a mission. Think about Isaiah. He 
sees the fires of Amal, and he's given this mission to preach. Jeremiah is the same way. Moses is the same way. He has the encounter with God in the Ten Commandments, and then he's asking, he asks to be the promised land, people to be led into the promised land. Like throughout scripture, there isn't that encounter with this vision of God as God without mission not being given. Now, not everyone accepts their mission, right? The young man, when he asks, he approaches Jesus and asks, what does it take to be holy? And he said, you know, sell all your things and follow me. And it says that he went away sad. I'm, I'm always hoping in the back of my mind that he comes back around and he's like, yes, I will follow you. But, um, but really, like, not everyone accepts their mission, but everyone is given the mission. We all have a mission in this world. And that's what I think is cool about holiness. The two goals, if you have relationship goals, anyone has relationship goals in any relationship, right? What would your relationship goals be for Jesus? Do a hashtag. Hashtag relationship goals. You think it's the Instagram picture, but it's something else. What would your goals be? Anyone bold enough to say? What'd you say? Honesty. Honesty? I like it. Obedience? That's a hard one. I like it, and it's so easy until you have to be obedient. I had something that happened with my boss, and I was like, I just, like, I don't agree with you. And in my head, I was like, but I have to be obedient to what he asked me to do. It wasn't anything crazy, but that's the hardest part for me a lot. Super independent. I have two relationship goals for Jesus. Number one is to become like him. Did you ever notice my parents have been married for 50, it'll be 50 years in August, so 49 years. And I swear the older they get, the more they become like each other. <laughs> it's like pretty uncanny. Um, but you have to spend time in the person that you're supposed to become, right? And if God is asking us to be Jesus in the world, to love like him in the world, like our it says in the Catechism, the vocation to humanity is to love. The vocation of humanity is to love. We have to know what that looks like, right? So to become like Jesus. My second goal of this life is to get to heaven. Always be kingdom-minded. Like, is this leading me closer to heaven or not? Like, that, that's an honest question we have to ask ourselves in every day. And yes, sometimes sitting on the couch, eating ice cream, and watching whatever you want on, like, I'm like an Emma fan, it's going to be closer to heaven, I'm just saying. There's <laughs> moments of recreation, there's moments of action, there's moments of prayer that will get me to heaven, right? So the relationship goals, which is more of what you guys are saying, the obedience and the honesty will fit into this. Um, to form meaningful and lasting relationships in general, but all especially in would be commitment, trust, time, communication, forgiveness, love. I love that you have honesty. I should have added it. I love that you have obedience. It's one of the hardest things. I should have added it. What else should be on this list? Is this helpful to you guys? It's hard to see because I can't see anyone's faces. <laughs> Like, I always tell myself, like, God has three answers to prayers. Yes, no, and wait for it. Yeah, not now, but later. Or not this, but something better. Love it. Patience. Also something I need in my life. Anything else? I would say relational self-awareness. Relational self-awareness. Like, like our own faults and failings? Well, yeah, especially in regards to the other Yeah. Humility. How many independent people do I have in here? That's 
That's so hard for me. But I think in the honesty of it, I think that comes from that honesty of being honest with ourselves, like being honest with like the gifts that God has given us and being honest with like our faults and failings. I am a huge, d- despite my presentation skills, I'm a huge introvert. So me returning phone calls to people or text messages to people happens sometimes days. And also I think from missionary, I just never had my phone with me, happened days later. Um, so knowing those gifts that you have, but also those like weaknesses as well. Same thing in the areas of sin, those sins that we have versus those virtues that we have and recognizing and working on it. So there will be highs and lows in any relationship. I love this quote. Do you ever think about the Bible? It starts with a love story in the garden with Adam and Eve. It ends with a love story like in, in Revelation. And there's smack dab in the middle, a song of songs. It's this whole garden, wedding, beautiful thing. But I have found the one whom my soul loves. Have you ever thought of that scripture? Matt Mar has a cool um, song called Set Me as a Seal in Your Heart that's based on that scripture. Um, but I found the one that my heart loves. I found the one that my heart longs for, right? And we a lot of times connect that to romantic love, like or like the person that we're going to spend the rest of our life for. But can we say those words in relationship to Jesus? That my heart longs for that. So I trust in that relationship above all else, and that helps me order all of my relationships in all areas of my life. Some of the hardest relationships are the ones with the they're some of the most fruitful as well. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time because young people, especially middle school and high schoolers who I worked with the most, always, what do you want for your life? They're always like, I want to be happy. I want to be happy. And a lot of times they equate happiness with doing whatever they want to do, um, with like what they quote unquote think freedom is. And John Paul II says this. It's really small font, so I'll read it to you. It says, it is Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness. He is waiting for you when nothing else you find satisfies you. He is the beauty to which you are so attracted. It is he who provoked you with that thirst for the fullness that will not let you settle for compromise. It is he who urges you to shed the mask of a false life. It is he who reads in your heart your most genuine choices, the choices that others try to stifle. It is Jesus who stirs in you the desire to do something great with your life. It, the will to follow an idea, the refusal to allow yourself to be grounded down by mediocrity, the courage to commit yourself humbly and patiently to improving yourself, society, and society, making the world more human and more fraternal. That always knocks me on my feet, or not. is the heart of it. When you dream of happiness, it's Jesus that you seek. We don't always find him in what we choose to bring us happiness in our lives, but it's Jesus that you're seeking when you want happiness, right? And so sometimes when we feel like lonely or or not good enough or all these things that the devil's telling you, the devil wants to divide and isolate us. So he tells you of all of the things that he, he like half-truths and he twists them and he wants to separate us. It is Jesus that will bring you happiness. And I realized I was walking closer to him when I stopped saying, like in high school, I'd be like, if I got to into Barry College, I will be happy. 
If I went to Medical College of Georgia the first time I applied, I would be happy. If I, when I get out of school, I want to work for CHOA, and I want to be an OT at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and that will make me happy. And then I'm going to get married when, and I achieved all those things. I achieved those things that I wanted to do, but I still was always next, next. Even people in here that are married can tell you marriage is beautiful and wonderful, and it gives you happiness, but it's not all fulfilling, right? There's still a lot of struggle and stuff. We won't be fully happy and satisfied until we're in heaven. And these are paths to get to heaven. But my prayer stopped being for this thing. And my prayer was, Lord, you know what makes me happy. I want your will in my life. Lord, I always, when I applied to jobs, so there's a job, I was thinking about changing jobs, and there was this job I really, really wanted. Put my application in, and the prayer that I said is, Lord, I'm too dumb to figure this out. So if you don't want me in this job, strip it away. That's a hard prayer, because guess what he did? He stripped it away. I went through the interview process. I thought it went really well. I really went to the second interview process. I was like, yes, I've got it. And they offered it to someone else. It was stripped away. And in that moment, what did I have to do in the midst of my disappointment? In the midst of my tears? Say, thank you, Jesus. I trust you. Not to be afraid to say, Lord, I'm really disappointed. I'm really sad. Like, I really thought this was it. But thank you, Jesus, and I trust in you. And that's hard. That's a hard place to be. Community is really important, too, for that. So the communion of saints is part of God's family. I put the catechism references down here because I don't have time to break it all open. So if you are one of those people that is Catholic nerdy like me and want to read it all, I used to go to talks like this and be like, this is all really great, but I really want to know more. This is all really great, but I really want to know more. Like, start reading and diving into that. Um, it wasn't until I was in a theology class at one point, and I forget what, it was a Christology class, and I forget what we were studying, but I remember it being like, I don't want to know anymore. <laughs> so when we talk about the communion of saints, we talk about being God's family, there's three parts of the communion of saints. The church militant. This is the holy church on the, the earth. Guess what? We are part of the communion of saints now.
big S saint means the church is canonized, which is a fancy word of saying officially recognized, that someone of the faithful who has practiced heroic virtue. So when we talk about theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, which we can talk about later, also um, the cardinal virtues, um, prudence, temperance, fortitude, and prudence, temperance, fortitude, and help me. Justice. Justice, thank you. Whew. When you practice heroic virtue, you practice in a way that is even one step farther than what needed to happen. That you lived in fidelity to God's grace within the church, and that you are in heaven with union God. So these are people that we officially recognize as in heaven. Anybody who's in heaven is a saint. So don't, like praying to intercessory and asking for your grandmother, or holy people that you know that have already passed away, um, or innocents, like um, little babies and stuff that pass away, on some of my kids with disabilities that I've worked with, I've, had, I've only lost like a handful of them in the years that I worked. One of them was, um, and I always pray to them. And I can't wait to see their little glorified bodies in heaven. I'm like always wonder if I'm going to recognize them because a lot of times their bodies were physically less than what would be ideal. Certain ones with our babies. Does that make sense? Um, so they are in heaven with you and that. I'm really good at tangents. If you are in heaven, you are a saint. If you're in heaven, you're a saint. I just said that. So I have a little video that captures way better than I can explain how you become a saint. If you've been in any of the RCIA classes, if I teach this topic, you've probably, you've probably already seen it. Have you seen it? You've seen it. I always play it, though. It's all, I get something out of it every time I watch. It's only three minutes long. Did you ever want to know how the Catholic Church declares someone a saint? You probably know that periodically the Catholic Church recognizes new holy men and women as its official saints. But what exactly are the steps to canonization, that is, being named a saint by the Catholic Church? The process has actually changed throughout history. In the first centuries, it was by acclamation of the community that sainthood was pronounced, sort of a spiritual popularity contest. But because the stories of some of the early saints' lives were later found to be exaggerated or even purely legend, this method eventually gave way to a more structured process. So, in the Middle Ages, a new path to sainthood was prescribed. A set of rules we pretty much still use today. Here's what happens. First of all, and probably most obvious, a person has to have died in order to be considered an official saint in the church because we believe the saints are in heaven with God. So at some point after their death, some fan of the potential saint, like someone who knew them or a member of their religious community, asks their local bishop to begin the cause for canonization. Once the bishop agrees, the potential saint receives the title Servant of God. And a formal review is undertaken at the local level, guided by historians and theologians. Then the bishop may decide to send the cause to Rome. The Congregation for the Causes of Saints, an entire department at the Vatican devoted to this sainthood process, then determines if the person in question demonstrated heroic sanctity in their lifetime worthy of imitation. That is, did they live a life marked by virtuous actions, doing good works out of love of God and neighbor? If so, with the Pope's decree, they are declared venerable. 
Next, the search begins for proof that a miracle occurred through the person's intercession since they have died. Note that this is not a miracle that happened while they were alive, like cases where saints have reportedly levitated or experienced the wounds of Christ. In the eyes of the church, a miracle attributed to someone after their death is evidence that the person is indeed in heaven with God, interceding for us here on earth. Catholic belief is that it is actually God that performs the miracle. The potential saint is essentially being credited with an assist, like in hockey or basketball. The process of confirming that a miracle truly happened is exhaustive. Miracles for sainthood are not limited to medical cures, but in practice they almost always are. And a miraculous cure must meet three stringent criteria. It must be instantaneous, lasting, and unexplainable. Instantaneous, meaning that a person goes from very sick or terminally ill to healthy in a very short period of time, usually days. Lasting, meaning it was not a fluke or a brief remission, the cure needs to last for at least a year or more. And unexplainable, meaning that the person's return to health may not be even possibly attributed to any other course of treatment. To verify these criteria, doctors and scientific experts scrutinize medical records and weigh in on the credibility of these claims. Even non-religious skeptics are invited to try to disprove the miracle. On top of all that, there must be evidence that people prayed for the intercession of the would-be saint before the miraculous cure happened, and that they did not enlist the help of any other saint. It's okay to pray to God or Jesus directly, of course, but you can't hedge your bets by also including ringers like St. Jude or even the Virgin Mary. So once there is proof that a miracle resulted from the aspiring saint's intercession, the person may now be officially called blessed. The ceremony during which this happens is called beatification and is most often held in the local diocese that has promoted this person's sainthood cause. At this point, a feast day is chosen to be celebrated in certain places having to do with this blessed person, and churches and schools may be named after them. And now the search begins for a second miracle that can be shown to have happened after the beatification, using the same stringent process just described. Once miracle number two is verified and approved by Rome, the person may then be officially canonized, which means that the Pope declares them a saint. This ceremony almost always happens at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and is presided over by the Pope himself. Once canonized, a saint is recognized by the Universal Church and their feast day may be celebrated all around the world. Now that's the official process. Of course, there are always exceptions. For instance, a martyr, someone who has died voluntarily as a witness to the faith, requires only one miracle for canonization, not two. The Pope can also decide to dispense with the second miracle even for a non-martyr, as Pope Francis did with Pope John XXIII. And then there's equivalent canonization, in which someone who is unofficially considered a saint in certain cultures or countries can be officially declared one through papal decree rather than through the full canonization process. It's important to note that the Catholic Church does not believe that through any of these processes a holy person becomes a saint. We are merely recognizing their sainthood. It's our earthly way of officially affirming that they are indeed in heaven with God, hearing and assisting with our prayers. And now you know how the Catholic Church officially goes about declaring someone a saint.
like start reading the lives of the saints because that is theology lived out. That is holiness lived out. And the crazy thing about it is every saint is different, right? One Advent, when uh, I, one of the years that I was there, I got permission to take finals early, and I went for all of Advent to Calcutta, India, and spent four weeks on mission with Family Missions Company. It's a Catholic way company that supports full-time Catholic missionaries throughout the world. Um, and we spent a whole month there, all of Advent, just working and learning and praying with the sisters and working in their homes. I remember the first day I was there, I was praying because when you do orientation, you get assigned to one of their homes, and some people will stay there for years, some people will stay there for like a couple days, but you, once you're assigned to a home, you're, you're in that home for your entire duration, and I remember praying, and I'm like, Lord, let it not be the home for the dying, let it not be for the home for the dying, and I went to orientation, and we went through the whole process, and I got assigned to her home for the dying, and I was like, I don't know if I have this in me, like I just don't know, and so... Um, it was really a fruitful time. Uh, we would meet, we'd walk through the streets of Calcutta, and it'd be so crazy because there'd be whole families, like parents and two children that just, this is the area of their pavement that they live on and sleep on. And I, we would walk in, and you'd go and pray. You'd do holy hour and mass in the morning with the sisters. So all the sisters would come in. We would do holy hour, I'm sorry, we'd do holy hour. We'd pray liturgy of the hours, which is a prayer of the church. And then we'd do mass. And then they would take us down for a really simple breakfast of, um, you get chai tea and a little bit of bread and a banana, and then you get sent to your different homes to go to, and you would work and do with the patients or the people that are in those homes and help do laundry and help all these different things. Um, and then you would go in the afternoon, we would go back to our little area for a siesta, but we would go into the market and buy just a bunch of coffee and food and things that the people that live on the street need and put little care packages together and then just go out on the street and start bringing them what they need and talking to them about Jesus. Um, and realizing that her spirituality, Mother Teresa's spirituality, um, she, her whole thing was, I can't do great things, I can only do small things with great love. She did some pretty great things in her life. When she talks about, when you read her readings, she has this amazing book that I have over here called um, the, like, the Simple Path. Um, and she said that her missionary ter territory was the four feet that were around her at all times. And so she walked in the street one day, she saw someone dying on the street, she picked that person up, she brought her home, she tended to her, she removed the maggots from her hair, like the story isn't pretty, and as she was dying, she died. The first person that she ever brought home died that same day. She was there with him, and what did she do? The next day, she walked out of her house, she found someone, she brought it. By that example, more and more people started following her, right? It sounds like a Easy big thing. And she kept saying that it was the four feet around me. It's the four feet around her. It was really powerful. So saints are models of holiness. They intercess, they pray for us, they intercede for us. You've got Mother Teresa on one side, St. Thomas Aquinas. He had a really hard time with temperance. He liked to eat a lot. He's a little gluttonous. They used to say he's like this amazing theologian. So he could take Aristotle, all the philosophies, and apply it to the Catholic faith. They said that when he would go to dinner, at his table, they had to cut out a circle so he could pull himself up to dinner to eat um, and to drink. He liked to drink, too. But he's this amazing. Most of our, our, our theological teachings are based, like the Summa, and are based in those patristic theologians. He was brilliant. Blow your mind brilliant. I remember reading the Summa, and I had to start with Peter Kreef's book of, like, the Summa of the Summa to understand what he's even saying. But it's so mind-blowing. But his way of holiness 
was to use that intellect to travel to the heart to change lives. They're both saints. Totally different missions. So the hard part, about, the easy part about holiness is you recognize it, right? Holy people hang out with holy people. And a lot of times your closest friends are people that call you on in holiness or call you on in community. But also, that doesn't mean you have to be like them to be holy. Like, there's characteristics you want, obviously. But, like, your missions look different. So they will intercede for you. They will pray for you, especially in areas that you really struggle with. They are source and origin of renewal in the most difficult times in the church. See, Francis of Assisi, I put him there. I went to Franciscan, so I have to. But, like, think about it. He was so bold. He had this huge conversion. He was from a, like, a more wealthy family. He had this huge conversion reading the lives of the saints. He had got this war wound. He's in the hospital. He's reading... Oh, wait, am I going to say Augustine? Confused? Well, he was in, he was in prison. Ignatius. Ignatius. Yes! Sorry, I'm getting him confused. Well, he got captured while he was on a crusade, I think, St. Francis of Assisi. Yes. He got captured, he got captured in, so he prison. in prison. And so he was in a prison camp. Uh, he was in a POW camp. Yeah, I totally just missed out. I know nothing. Just throw this out. St. Ignatius got converted, as well as Augustine, by reading Lives of the Saints. But he was in prison. Thank you for reorienting me. And and basically, the medieval equivalent of the POW camp. Uh, He was, was, um, yeah, and and, yeah, because he was a party guy. He was. um, Before, and and yeah, he just, he wanted to go on this glorious crusade for self-gratification. Yes. uh, Not for God. Um, but, um, she so, needs to come teach a class. All these people that are smarter than me, keep going. So, um, and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to remember because I've, I've been focused, but, you know, I just joined the church this past summer, so I'm still learning. But, but he's my patron saint. Yeah, so he um, went on this crusade. He has this profound encounter with Christ. He goes home to tell his dad that he doesn't want to, or that he does, he wants to denounce his inheritance to become part of the church, right? Yep, and, yep, and he goes inside the cathedral mm-hmm. of Assisi. He does? Um, yeah. And, well, no, the cathedral isn't there in Assisi yet. It was uh, built after his death. Okay, but, but he goes to the local bishop because mm-hmm. his father's like, you're crazy. And yeah. everyone around him thinks he's crazy too because why would a nobleman, a boy who's about to inherit his vast fortune, give up everything? This guy's nuts. He is and nuts. So he goes into... So he goes to the bishop, and I know the sun's kind of creepy, but yeah, he takes off he takes off all of his clothes. Yeah, that's what I was about to see. And the bishop gives him a set of clothes, uh, and 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 then after clothing him, embraces him, and then he starts the Franciscan orders, and and people are very attracted to it. Um, He takes the vow of poverty. At first, everybody thinks he's crazy, so he only preaches to the birds. Yeah, um, which is part of the reason why he's a patron saint of animals. That and the wolf of Gubito, um, which is my favorite story, and that's really the reason I picked him as my patron saint. I'm so glad that you're here today. All right, so St. <laughs> Francis of Assisi. I'm sorry I got him mixed up. Sometimes stories get mixed up in my head, but I get really excited about them. St. Francis of Assisi, the one thing that I like love about him, so there's two parts in his story that I love. The part where his dad really wants him to be this nobleman, to, to receive this inheritance, he doesn't think he's serious. The bishop isn't sure if he's serious, right? He's this noble party dude. And he walks up, and to prove his seriousness, he takes off all of his clothes. Like, I'm doffing off my old life. And then the bishop, they say he walked through the streets naked. I don't know if it really happened. Um, 
And then he, the bishop closed him in a simple row. And that's the Franciscan habit that you see. Do you ever see the people walking around in the brown? Um, that's his Franciscan habit. But the coolest thing ever is there's a time he becomes a, like, this call in a time where the church is super corrupt, right? The, the church is super corrupt. And he hears this call to rebuild this. The church had knocked down. He, um, with all that, he hears this call to rebuild his church. He's like, you will rebuild my church. And what does St. Francis do? He literally starts rebuilding. He's like, all right, let me take these bricks, and I'm going to build the church. And God's like, no, 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 no. He's like, you are going to rebuild my church. And he almost and he, converted the sultan. Yeah, he went yeah, to go he convert the sultan. He saw that the crusaders were acting like Craziness. Um, so he, I'm going to interrupt you, and I'm sorry. Is that okay? I just want to run out of time. You're, you know so much. Let's sit down and talk about it after. Um, so he is the, the point in which people come to greater and greater holiness. Right? By living out the mission. Not that he heard it perfectly, but that he knew what the mission was. Right? Um, they're a diverse group of people, which we talked about, and they're always the patron of something. When early on in St. Francis, no one listened to him. Like, some of the people, holiness can sometimes look a little strange or be really countercultural. And so they say that there are stories of him preaching to the birds, like being one with nature. And you'll find Franciscan priests, especially. At Franciscan, like they're always out walking through nature, like they have this very special connection. But he's, they are patron saint of, of animals. But you've got like Saint Michael Archangel, who is patron of, who defended, who battled Satan. He's the patron of policemen and soldiers. You've got Saint Cecilia, who's the patron of music. Like they have something. Saint Anne, the patron of Saint Mother Mary's mother, is the patron of mothers. And, and um, Saint uh, Martin de Porres, I'm not sure if I Yeah, and he's also a patron saint of missionaries. That's awesome. So they also have feast days on their calendar. They have a day that reckon that like they recognize as their day in the church. Like Maximilian Colby is the day that a lot of times if they're martyred, it's the day that they die, or the day, um, or sometimes it's their birthday depending on when that falls. Um, like Maximilian Colby is an amazing priest who died in Auschwitz. He was an amazing Marian theologian. He had started this whole society, like in his everyday life. Um, he had started this whole society as a Catholic priest that was based in Mariology. He was just a really cool, like, he had this whole newsletter that he sent, sent out. And he was a priest in Poland during Nazi, during, or when the Nazis were taking over. He used his publication and his reach, the, the, him and all of his priest brothers, to speak out against the Nazis. They ended up closing it down. He ended up at Auschwitz. And if there was a moment where his heroic virtue moment was when someone, a prisoner tried to escape. So they were going to kill, it was, I don't remember how many, seven, 12, I don't remember. But a group of prisoners, and they're pulling all these Jewish people, calling these names, and like, you, you, you're going to go to the starvation trunk. And one of the prisoners was like, my, my family, like my wife, my children. And, um, and Maximilian Colby, who was in the priest barracks, who wasn't chosen, stepped forward, and he was like, I will go in his they kept, they starved them. They slowly started dying because they had no access to food or water. And he would pray with them, and he would um, try and make Eucharist out of, like, they were try, like, I think prisoners were trying to sneak bread for him to pray and to do Mass and offer the Eucharist. But um, at the end of the day, he's the only one that's still alive through prayer. And they ended up having to give him, a, on the, the eve of the Immaculate Conception, they ended up giving him a lethal injection that killed him in Auschwitz. That's crazy. 
crazy. Like, but all of those moments led up to that choice. The coolest thing ever when he was canonized as saint, guess who was there? The Jewish person that he stepped in for, his, his children and his grandchildren were present at his canonization. So generational. Your choice to holiness can affect generations that come. It's powerful stuff. And it wasn't that in that moment he chose holiness, he walked along the path to the point where he could choose that virtue. He realized that his life wasn't here, his life was his life was heaven. But it's still, he did it. It's heroic. Would he have been okay if he stood there? Like all the other priests and never said anything. Yeah. He didn't have to do it. I wouldn't have judged him. Right? It's not a bad decision. But he chose, he decided that that prisoner's life was more important than his own. The other title that's um, in the list of questions that were sent to me from questions you guys had, um, one of the questions was, what does it mean to be a doctor of the church? One of your handout um, that I gave you is the front part that has the picture is actually created by the USCCB published that talks about it. And then on the back, I thought it'd be cool just to list out all the doctors of the church. Um, it sounds different than a medical doctor. It is different than a medical doctor. It's Doctor Ecclesia Universalis is the official title. Doctore with the R-E at the end, is Latin for teaching. So Dr. Ecclesia, so the doctor of the universal church is how that title, that's why we call the doctor of the church. There's 36 of them now. Pope Francis in 2015 added um, Gregory of, I Gregory of Nar- Narek, Armenian monthly poet. Um, that's all the last one on your list. So there's actually 36 on the list now. Um, that was a cool book that I found, though, about it. But it's a title given by the Catholic Church to saints recognized as having made significant contributions to theology or doctrine through their research, studies, or writings. He reaches a high degree, they reach a high degree of sanctity, and they're named by a formal proclamation, so by a pope or an ecclesial council can now, what you think, like Thomas Aquinas um, is on that list, but like St. Catherine of Siena is also on that list. And she was like, in all sense and purpose, she was a lay woman. She wasn't even part of a religious order. And for all intents and purposes, she was illiterate. So it's not necessarily the theological writings. St. Therese of Lisieux is on the list. Like her, she was a, a, a Carmelite nun that was cloistered in this small convent and literally had like wrote things was part of her like community but didn't really start to get too well known until after she died really young of tuberculosis right so her and, and john paul ii had the boldness this cloister nun who always longed to do missions but like because of her health and she was joined this cloistered convent like never actually went out on mission john paul ii had the audacity to name her patroness of mission world. Right? And her whole thing, you know what I love about Therese? I used to, like, she used to irritate me because she's really holy. And I'm not holy in the same way she is. She's very little, right? You know what I love about her? She would sit in adoration. How many of you have ever tried to, like, you want to go pray or to start a rosary and you fall asleep before you finish? How many are there? And you feel so bad and so guilty about it. She would be with all her sisters in adoration praying and she would um, fall asleep. 
be resting in God. And like a sister from Wayne Mountain, you're being super judgmental, and like, how do you sleep? Well, like, you know what she says to him, that which I love? What father does not love to gaze on her daughter while we're sleeping? Yes! <laughs> I give permission to fall asleep anytime I'm praying. Um, she was just like, her whole thing was to do small acts of, of love without recognition, right? Little flowers of love. She used to pray to God to receive all of the love that anyone in this world has ever cast aside. And as she was dying of tuberculosis, she said, like in her writings and what she said to her, her fellow sisters, she said that she wants to spend eternity doing good on earth, like sending little flowers on earth. Like when I started reading her, St. Therese of Lisieux, French, little French. Colby we talked about. This wasn't just a man that gave his life 
he works and walks in these little ways all the way to, to holiness. St. Stephen, the stoning of St. Stephen was that turning point where the church had to go underground because it started getting persecuted. It's a saint that his sainthood is in, grounded in scripture. You can read about that in scripture. He was um, really powerful. That's St. Therese of Lisieux. Like I said, I used to read her when I was a mission. We had to read her. Um, this book changed my life, by the way. Um, we had to read her actual reading, but we also had to read, and when I did my retreat, I did this book called I Believe in Love. And there's parts where you read it, because she's dying of tuberculosis, right? And she's coughing up blood. And there's a part in there where she says, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to suffer this way, because I'm one step closer to you in heaven. And I remember thinking, yeah, right. If I'm coughing up blood, that is not what I'm praying. And I realized she irritated me so much early on as I'm being formed a missionary because I am not holy the way she's holy. Right? So she's calling me out in this powerful way. Um, but this, you can tell, I've like read it, reread it, like marked it up. This book, um, I did an eight-day silent retreat, and this was my spiritual reading. It changed my life. And it's all a book based on her spirituality. Blessed Jose Santos del Rio. He was a 14-year-old boy during the Cristera. Sorry, I'm reading it right now. He's here. This is the um, saint that, um, for greater glory, the movie that has Andy Garcia and Ava Longoria is. Have you ever seen that? Maybe you've seen that. Oh my gosh, oh, right. did. It's so good. He was friends with one of the Jesuit priests that were from Europe that refused to leave. He saw his priest murdered. Um, they realized he was part of this movement. He got arrested. 14 years old, right? The general just says, all you have to do is say, down with Christ the King. Right? You're 14 years old. Your mom's here begging you to do it. Your uncle's here begging you to do it. And, and he served as an altar boy with this Jesuit priest. He saw him get murdered. He's like, I just can't do it. Right? So the executioners, they cut the bottoms of his feet, like to suffer, right? He's 14 years old. All you have to do is say, down with Christ the King. That's all you have to do. You get to go home with your mom. He looks at his mom. His mom's begging him. He's like, I can't do it. They have him walk on his cut feet to the place where they had dug out his grave. All you have to do is say, That's all you have to do. You get to go free. He literally has this exchange with them, with his mother. He says he can't do it. He's actually martyred right there on the spot. And as he's, he's dying, he takes the blood and he writes the sign of the same words he says in the rest of the way, long with Christ the King. If he chose to be like down with Christ the King and he walked home, would it change your opinion of him at all? If I was his mother, I would be like, thank you, Jesus, right? Heroic virtue looks different in certain situations. And that's not to say all of us have to do that, but there are examples of us. 14 years old. Communion of saints. Elizabeth is my patron saint, my confirmation saint. I always love, I like this picture especially, but I was like, oh my gosh, who better to be my confirmation saint than the first person that Mary ran to to tell him about Jesus and the fact that her baby recognized it. I don't know, I just think it's really cool. So I had to put her in. Gianna Mola, she's a doctor. She was in a very faithful relationship. She was busy raising children. She was a, a parish like physician in a time where it wasn't quite as normal. She uh, found out she was pregnant. She also found out that she had a tumor. And so her choice was to remove the tumor, but she most likely would have miscarried the baby. Um, or 
the baby to full term. So she decided to have the baby to full term give birth to the baby. She ended up passing away from cancer, but she was raised up as one of the patron saints because she realized that her um, child's life is more important than her own. It's a very specific example. I always say mothers understand this is my body given up for you way better than anyone else that we can offer understand, but this is a very important like vision of that as well. Like I think mothers understand that part of the mass even more than any of us do. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas I talked about. We're going to end, sorry, I went a little bit over. Is that okay? We're going to end. I've got a couple of quotes and then you can have some discussion time. These are some of the quotes from saints about sanctity. There are more a person loves God, the more reasons he has to hope in him. This hope produces saints an unutterable peace, which they um, preserve even in adversity, because as they love God and know how beautiful he is, to know those who love him, they place all their confidence and find all their repose in him alone. The heart of holiness is relationship with God. God's invitation to become saints is for all, not just a few. Sanctity, therefore, must be accessible to all. In what does it consist? In a lot of activity? No. In doing extraordinary things? No. This could be for everybody and at all times. Therefore, sanctity consists in doing good and in doing good in whatever condition and place God has placed us. Nothing more, nothing outside of this. Our Lord has created persons for all states in life and in all life. And in all of them, we see people who achieve sanctity by fulfilling their obligations well. Blessed Jose um, Escriva has some really good writings on, um, on what it is to, especially for men, to live out holiness in the modern world and practicals of this. Holiness is a disposition of the heart that makes us humble and little in the arms of God, aware of our weakness and confident in the most audacious way in his fatherly goodness of us. I think St. Therese understood this, right? She understood the need of being his daughter alone. And then there's no sure way to know that one is a saint than to see him lead a holy life and yet suffer desolation, trials, and tribulations. Have you ever met that person who like is in the midst of something really crazy and you still see holiness in them? Like happiness isn't like think about your most important relationships, right? Happiness isn't always easy, but there's always something good. There's always something that's refining in our hearts. Um, all saints understand and live prayer and sacraments, which is to look at, they understand virtues, which we talked about, love, faith, hope are those theological virtues infused by God. This catechism references breaks it open beautifully and gives you scripture verses to connect them with. Um, the cardinal virtues, prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude, the four. Um, Benedict Rochelle has this awesome book called The Virtue-Driven Life as well, if you need a book to sort of accompany you in that journey. Um, I find it the most practical one in like giving you steps to live it out. I met him once. I was like, I hope he's a saint one day, just so I can say I've met a saint. He's like one of the holy, funniest, nicest men ever. And then they all live out beatitude. Blessed is the poor, blessed is the meek, blessed are those who suffer. Like those characteristics is a path to holiness. And how do you see blessing in those who are mourning and those who are weeping and those who are imprisoned? Um, so it's covenant, it's communion, talked about the virtues, and then the beatitudes, so blessed is
in the promise, but living out the beatitude is that blueprint for holiness. It's the blueprint for faith, for sainthood. We need saints who are mothers and fathers. We need saints who are computer programmers. We need saints who are going to go into an office and transform a culture. We need saints who are going to spend little times working really hard. The people I learn the most with, the holiness of how to love unconditionally, my children who have an extra chromosome, they love Down child with Down syndrome just loves, right? Um, they teach me how to love no matter what. I could be crazy. I didn't do my makeup. I've got mismatched scrubs. The other day I had scrubs on. I swear I looked like I worked at McDonald's. I had like red pants and a yellow shirt. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? They're just like, Miss Carla. Like, um, the understanding of those pieces of it. So again, ending with that quote, it is Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness. Holiness is patient and humble. We get our Joan of Arc moments, we get our Maximilian Colby moments, but um, true holiness is patient and humble. I'll leave you with the story of one of my teens. This is my last story. We'll go into the um, questions. I was a youth minister. Sometimes if you see youth ministry happening, we're doing cream pies. We're doing all this crazy, fluffy nonsense, right? Like. Um, we're building community. We're trying to break open people's boundaries. We talk about Jesus a lot. We walk with people over time. I would lead a mission trip to Jamaica every year so that my teens could experience an orphanage that had children with disabilities. So they could understand what is it when you're with a person that can't physically do anything? What do they have to give you? What do they not have to give you? I, was just, it was just, I had a teen who was going to be the first person to ever graduate from high school and go to college and her family and her entire life. And she comes to me, she's about to graduate high school, and she comes to me and she goes, Carla, I'm pregnant. My mom really wants me to have an abortion and I don't know what to do. Oh, well, let's talk about it. When you pray about it, what does God tell you? And she looks me in the eye, and I've known her for four years. Drop dead gorgeous, beautiful person, Humble, sweet, amazing. She got in the situation, right? And I go, well, when you pray about it, what does God tell you to do? And she goes, I keep picturing those kids on mission. She's like, they didn't have a family. They had nothing to give. She's like, I think that God's calling me to be a mom. I was like, all right. Here's your answer. We prayed together. We talked about what needed to happen. We obviously met with her parents and offered her the support she needed. So fast forward a week, or it was probably more like a couple months where she's showing, and I was like, you're always welcome here. No matter what, you're always welcome here. And I was like, don't worry what anyone says. So all the little teens come, like, it's like a scandal, right? Did you hear? You tell your name tag. She has a question. I tell the story all the time. She's, she's pregnant. She's this. She's that. There's two realities. If she had chosen an abortion, you would never have known that she pregnant. Ever. You never would have known unless she told you. Right? And number two, she has chosen life. You have no idea what happens, right? You have no idea if she's talked to a priest, if she's gone to confession, if this was a willingness, if this wasn't one. We don't know that story, or you're not privy to that information. It's not my information to give. But we know she has says yes to life. What is our job? What is holiness in that moment? 
And I went to bat for her. I went to bat for her because we were her community. We were her support system for this baby, right? And I went to bat for her, and I battled parents, and I had parents threatening to remove their children, and that happened, but I went to battle for her because it was worth it. I was not popular. I mean, my priest supported me, which was awesome, and a lot of other parents supported me, which was awesome, but I was not the good guy in the situation, but guess what? That child is about to graduate high school. Guess what? Missy went to college. It took her six years instead of four years. She had to sacrifice playing lacrosse. Guess what? She's college educated. She's married. She has more kids. It is good to fight for something that's important, and that is holiness, right? That is holiness. She made a choice for holiness, and I supported her in that, even though it made me popular. Not telling the story to sing my praises, like I have more failure stories than successes, but hold on to those successes and realize it's worth it. Amen? Amen. Awesome. You guys have discussion questions at the table. Take some time. The top of your um, questions are right there, the top of it. And you guys can take some time to talk about it in your groups, and then we can do some uh, discussion at the end. And then I also put some just starter stuff if you guys like to go dip deeper. Father Mike Smith started this Bible, this Bible, doing the Bible in a year podcast. He's an amazing priest. He just started January 1st to do the Bible in the whole year. So if that's something that's up your alley, like that would be a cool scripture study. Um, Word on Fire, Bishop Robert Barron does some cool podcasts as well. Um, I put some apps, some papal documents on holiness and universal call and mission. And then books, the top books are books that just helped me spiritually grow. Um, like ones that I felt were pretty easy to dive deeper into. So those are just some ideas and suggestions. You might find something that's better. Amen. All right. So go do questions. Thank you so much for having me. And then we'll end with a prayer. We'll end with like discussion and prayer at the end. I'm trying to find that book. All right. Let's take the present. I've been up since six thirty. I don't know why. I just woke up and started my day like immediately. That's good. I woke up at nine and I like to sleep till like ten. Oh my gosh, it's so nice. I know, but it's a terrible habit though because like mm -hmm. so when I wake up and work, I'm up. But then, oh like my sleep, I can't find like the balance. And, yeah, because then I work two days and tired, so I feel like I have to sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not so. Bad. Okay, I want to say. I think that's about Mary, huh? Okay, yeah. yeah. See, that's Mary, but it's like... Okay. Excuse me. I've heard of it. I just can't. Like, I 33 think... days of merciful love. This is it. Yeah, so let me write it down. And I almost, if I'm honest, I didn't finish it. Because I, like, halfway. Yeah? And then I stopped it. Because I did it during quarantine. Oh, nice. And it's a really easy, like, one page a day kind of thing. So, um, I read a book every quarantine by Matthew Kelly called Resisting Happiness. Really? I might have it with me. Like at my house. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. I wrote this book down that she was talking about. I wrote that down too. <laughs> Can I join you? Yeah. <laughs>